Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be reading here in a few minutes, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, as we continue to study the Beatitudes. If you've been here a while, you know that the Beatitudes are the introductory portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been going through them for a while, one Beatitude at a time. And the reason we are preaching through the Sermon on the Mount is that we are studying the life of Christ in a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. So it's kind of a a mini-series inside of a mini-series inside of a bigger series. So we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at the Beatitudes, but overall we're walking through the life of Christ in a verse-by-verse manner. So um, have you ever been in a store and um, seen perhaps a, an item in the store that was mislabeled I mean, as far as the price tag? It has the wrong price tag on it. Perhaps that's happened to you before and you get up to the front and they put the little scanner through, beep, you know, and then a different price pops up than what you saw on the, well, this didn't look back there. It said it was this much, and now it says this much. And that, that happens from time to time accidentally. And then I read that recently, back during Christmas, just this past Christmas season, that a couple in South Carolina was doing that intentionally. They were going into Target stores and switching price tags and trying to get away with purchasing items for less than what they, they cost because they would get up front and argue with the clerk and the clerk would just say, okay, fine, I'll give it to you for what it was labeled, you know. And eventually they were, I guess, caught and, and prosecuted. Well, hearing that story reminded me of another story I heard once uh, about switching price tags. Now, this story, the way the story goes, if it's true, and I don't know if this was a true story or not, but um, the way it was told to me, it was. The story goes that many years ago, before modern surveillance technology and all the modern uh, systems we have to protect our different facilities or um, stores from thieves. Years ago, before that kind of stuff was in place, a very creative thief conspired a very shrewd plan to steal expensive items from a department store. He hid in the store, found a hiding place until it was closing time, and stayed there until the doors were shut. And under the cover of darkness, he came out of hiding and began to itemize all of the most expensive items in the jewelry section. He was going to figure out which were the the most expensive things. And then he began to very shrewdly change the price tags of the expensive items with some of the cheaper ones. So the price tag, for example, perhaps on like a $10,000 watch, was switched with that one of a $100 watch. He would switch the price tags on these. Or a $4,000 diamond necklace now was given the price tag that formerly belonged to a $40 piece of imitation jewelry. Once he was done, uh, he found a way to get out of the store. And the next morning, he was the first patron at the store. And immediately when it was opened up, he went in and began to purchase several items that were labeled as cheaper, but in reality were the expensive items. And the unsuspecting sales clerk didn't even notice that the items were mislabeled until it was way too late. And by the time the store workers did realize that things were mislabeled, the thief had walked away with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of priceless jewelry. Now, why he didn't just steal the stuff in the middle of the night, I don't know. But the way the story goes, he did this. He went and he changed all the price tags. He had, he had actually robbed them in, in broad daylight simply by switching the price tags. It reminds me of what Satan has done in this world. Under the cover of darkness, Satan has rearranged the price tags. All that is truly valuable is seen by the world as cheap and worthless. And all that is seen by the world as valuable in reality is worthless in the grand scheme of things. 
The world has bought into a worldview based on self-esteem and self-assertion. It has embraced the humanistic values that Satan has put into the storefront window. But these Beatitudes here are Jesus putting the price tags back in the right order. The Beatitudes is Jesus putting the price tags back on what's really valuable. Jesus declares what is truly important in life, what is truly blessed, what will truly make one happy. And he gives them to us here in these Beatitudes. And it's exactly the opposite of what the world has to say. The world looks at a trait like poverty of spirit or, or meekness or mercy. And the world sees Satan's lying labels and thinks those things are essentially worthless. But Jesus says the opposite. Here in this message about kingdom living, this Sermon on the Mount, he rips off the false price tags and shows us what truly makes a kingdom citizen blessed. He shows us what truly is valuable. So I want to stand now as we read this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 1, read all the way through verse 12. This is the Word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now and we want to consider this, this final beatitude, this eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to really consider what this means. Lord, I pray that, that through your word, through this passage right here and through the other supporting scriptures this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would affect our hearts that you would change us. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us as well. Lord, give us ears to hear what you want to say this morning. Make our hearts fertile ground so that the word can spring up and be fruitful and not be choked by the worries of this world. That it might not dry up the moment affliction and persecution come. Instead, give us fertile hearts to really receive the word and be fruitful. And give me a mouth to speak. And give me the mouth to speak accurately your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today we look at this final beatitude. As we're going through the beatitudes, it's in verse 10. Um, which, unlike the other beatitudes, has two more verses sort of attached to it. We know that verses 11 and 12 are an expansion or an explanation of verse 10, partially because Jesus is still clearly speaking about the same thing. He's speaking about persecution. And secondly, because of this rhetorical device that I've mentioned to you guys in the previous sermons called inclusio, if you want to know what, what it's called. 
But the device is simply this. You repeat a phrase. You say a phrase at the beginning of a passage or the beginning of a thought process, and then you say the, the same thing again at the end, and that marks the beginning and the end, the brackets of what Jesus is talking about here. So here in verse 10, we have this repeated promise that is also mentioned in the very first beatitude, which is verse number 3, which in the promise is simply this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus' hearers are hearing this, they're, they're hearing, okay, Jesus is sort of closing the bracket now on the Beatitudes. And of course, as I've mentioned before, this phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, kind of serves as a, um, well, a sort of a theme over all the Beatitudes. So that all the promises of the Beatitudes are included in that overall theme that this is what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. So this sermon, as I've said before, is a sermon for kingdom citizens about kingdom living. Even though there's a crowd listening in, Jesus is speaking specifically to his followers, his disciples. And that's very important for us to remember, especially when we come to today's Beatitude. It's also important to remember that there's a pattern to these Beatitudes. And uh, these aren't just random thoughts. And if you're here visiting with us this morning, this will be new information. But if you're not, you've heard me say this pretty much in every single one of the sermons on the Beatitudes. So for eight straight weeks, I've told you these things. But I want to remind you of them. That there, first of all, there's this 3-1-3-1 pattern happening here in this uh, passage of Scripture. The first three Beatitudes are about us emptying ourselves of ourselves. Poverty of spirit, okay, mourning over sin, meekness. And then that fourth one, which is the next one, so there's three, then one, that fourth one is about what we're filled with. After we've emptied ourselves of ourselves, we're hungry, we're thirsty. And what are we hungry and thirsty for? Righteousness, and we're filled with that righteousness. Then the next three are the result of that filling, or it's the overflow of that filling, which is that we show mercy, purity of heart, and that we're peacemakers. This is the overflow of righteousness, which is the character of God in our lives. And then that last one, Okay, the second of the ones, 3131, which is the eighth beatitude, the one we're on today, shows us how the world reacts to people who reflect the character of God. Namely, they react with persecution. Now, another pattern I pointed out is that the first half of the beatitudes correspond with the second half of the beatitudes. So, blessed are the poor in spirit is connected logically to blessed are the merciful. So, only those who are poor in spirit who have realized their poverty before God, have the type of spirit now in them that they can show mercy toward others. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Okay, that's tied to blessed are the pure in heart. Only those who mourn and hate their sin have any desire to seek holiness or purity. Blessed are the meek. Okay, it's tied to blessed are the peacemakers because only those who are meek, who aren't trying to vindicate themselves, are those who can rest in the providence of God and can be peacemakers. And then finally, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those two are also tied together. Now, it may seem strange, logically, in the text to move from peacemaking to now persecution. But remember, we talked about last week how kingdom citizens aren't peacemakers at any price. We are peacemakers that are seeking purity. Our peacemaking flows out of our purity, and we desire purity. So our peacemaking is built on purity of heart and therefore we stand for righteousness and know that despite despite what we do, some people will hate that righteousness. So therefore we will be persecuted. Now if there is ever a saying of Jesus's that seems to be upside down to this world or at least to our own flesh, it's this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Happy are those who are 
persecuted. Happy are the hurting. Happy are the harassed. That's the title I've given to today's message. And I'll just be honest with you, I ripped that off from John MacArthur. Happy are the harassed. I like it. It's the Holy Spirit's property anyway, right? Happy are the harassed. I mean, it doesn't make sense in this world. It doesn't make any sense. The word persecuted here literally means to, to pursue with zeal or to hunt down. Happy are those who are hunted down for righteousness' sake. So this is one of the marks of the kingdom citizen. If you'll remember, we have said before that all of these beatitudes are traits or are characteristics of all true believers. All true kingdom citizens should exhibit these beatitudes, and this one is no exception. I think it's not hard for us to imagine all the other ones. Okay, of course, all believers should have a poverty of spirit about them. All believers should mourn over the sin. All believers should be merciful. All believers should be peacemakers. But then we get to this one. I think we have a harder time understanding. Really, all believers are going to experience persecution? Friends, I think the scriptures are very, 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 very clear on this matter. Jesus says in John 15, 20, A servant is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Which leads me to our first point in your notes today for our message. And it's simply this. The reality is that all true Christians will receive some form of mistreatment by the world. That's just reality. All true Christians will receive some form of mistreatment by the world. That could come in the form from family, it could come from friends, it could come from co-workers, but all true believers will be mistreated by this world. We cannot escape the Scripture's teaching on this. And it makes sense because for Christians, if we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, then this world, which is the kingdom of darkness, is going to hate us. This world follows the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and therefore it hates those who were formerly citizens of its kingdom and are now citizens of the kingdom of light. If you've been watching the Olympics, you probably, I think he was even on last night, there's this one skater, um, there's the speed skating, but it's the short track speed skating. You know, it's like these guys just, it's like a, I don't know, it's crazy. If you ever watch short track speed skating, these guys are smacking at each other, I'm like, Wow. So one of these guys, though, is a Russian skater. Uh, and I can't remember his name. I think he's like Victor Ahn or something like that. But actually, he's Korean. And he actually skated in two previous Olympics for Korea. But now he's skating for Russia. And there's this backstory behind it at all. But some of the Korean people aren't that happy that their former favorite hero, national hero, is now skating for another nation. He changed his whole citizenship. So, of course, they're not happy about that. And that's the way the world reacts. If we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, our citizenship has changed, then the world gets angry about that. Darkness hates light. John 3, 19, Jesus says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Friends, anyone who is in Christ now has the light of Christ in him and thus has become 
or should have become, a light shining in this dark, sinful world. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And the more we walk, which simply means to live, the more we live as children of light, the more the world will hate us. And because darkness hates light, the world will fight against us in some way, form, or fashion because light exposes what darkness is trying to hide. John Stott said that persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Irreconcilable value systems. Why then are we told by some of our leaders in the church today, in the broader church today, that we are to try to reconcile with the world. Why are we told that by so many? Why are so many Christians and so many pastors and so many churches trying so hard to be liked by the world? Is it our Facebook culture we want to be liked? Is it our Twitter culture we want to have people following us? We want to pump ourselves with something about the church today. We are bending over backwards to try to make sure that the world likes us. And it makes no sense. It won't ever work no matter what. If you're truly a believer, no matter what you do, the world is going to hate you because the world hates Christ. The world hates the light. And if you don't like that, if you don't like that reality, then you don't like what Paul had to say to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you won't be comfortable with what James had to say in James 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you'll be unsettled by what Jesus had to say in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. And you'll be really discouraged by the accompanying woe that Jesus pronounces in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke chapter 6, verse 26, there are some woes that accompany the Beatitudes. And here's the woe. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. How many people in the church today are hungering and thirsting for the world to speak well of us? Friends, could it be that the degree to which this dark world speaks approvingly of us is the degree to which we resemble false prophets and not true prophets? This does not mean that a Christian is to go around trying to be unliked. It's not what I'm saying. Go be a jerk so that you're hated by the world. No. If you're being a jerk, you're not reflecting the light, actually. Actually, go be as kind as you can to the world and show love and mercy. And guess what? You're going to be hated. You're going to be hated. Friends, the days are coming and really are already here when there is no longer any wiggle room. For we have moved from a society built 
on the Christian principle of freedom and charitable tolerance to one that has totally redefined and perverted the word tolerance to now one that considers it a virtue to persecute and silence those who do not submit to this new definition of tolerance. I mean, not only has tolerance been redefined, now it's considered a high virtue to actually persecute those who don't come in line with this new definition of tolerance. That's, that shift has happened since I've been back in the States and I came back in 1990. A big swing. That's where we are today. If you don't believe me, I mean, how many of you guys paid attention to sort of the hubbub about the, the song that was nominated for the Oscars that uh, Johnny Erickson Tada had sung, and it was uh, for this movie called Alone Yet Not Alone. It's a Christian movie. It's actually a true story being retold, and, and this song is this beautiful song about but God always being with us through trials and tribulations. And it, it was nominated for an Oscar. The moment that song got nominated for an Oscar, my goodness, the floodgates opened of hatred toward the movie, toward uh, Johnny Erickson, toward Christianity, toward whatever. Just boom. Because the world, we are now in a place where it is considered a high virtue to condemn Anything that appears to not come in line with the new definitions of tolerance and of acceptance that our world has put out there for us. Persecution, friends, therefore, is a normal and expected part of being a Christian. And as our dark world gets darker, we must realize that. But but we don't need to wring our hands and be anxious and worried. For Jesus tells us that we're actually blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But at this point, we need to pause and we need to define persecution. In order to do that, I want to examine the other words that Jesus gives us here, his expansion of this beatitude. So we have, first of all, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus repeats and parallels the previous thought in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So blessed are those who are persecuted, therefore, is parallel with the second phrase that Jesus gives us. Blessed are you and others, and he gives us three things. Revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. The word revile simply means verbal insults. So sometimes we say, well, we're not really persecuted here in the United States because we're not, we're not being martyred. Jesus actually gives us a broader definition of persecution than just martyrdom, just death. Reviling is part of persecution. When someone throws insults at you, verbal abuse because of your faith. That exact word is used in Mark chapter 15, verse 32, when the people are are there at the foot of the cross and the other thieves are on the cross being crucified. It says those who were crucified with him reviled him. It's the same word. They were insulting him. And you can read those insults in the Scripture. 1 Peter 4.14 says, if you are insulted, and it's the same word, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Perhaps Peter actually had this, this sermon on the mount in his mind as he's writing those words. So perhaps you've received some sort of verbal abuse or some sort of taunt from an unbelieving family member or a co-worker or maybe someone you've been share, trying to share the gospel with. Maybe you've received some sort of verbal abuse simply because you stand for the gospel and you want to proclaim the good news. 
So that's the first type of persecution. Then there's the word Jesus repeats, which is the word persecute. Persecute you. Now this word usually is referring to physical harm, even to the point of being put to death. Christian history is filled with stories of those who have gone before us who have shed their blood. There are people today, as we speak, shedding their blood for the sake of the gospel. They are being put to death or they're being tortured. They're being harmed physically in some sort of way. I just read this week about two young sisters in Pakistan. Young sisters. Young, some of the young ladies in this room right here who came to Christ after receiving a gospel tract And just shortly after that, maybe only a few weeks after they were in their church service, they were unashamedly expressing their newfound faith in Christ when a suicide bomber walked in and blew them up along with dozens of other people, ending their precious lives in a heartbeat. That's happening everywhere across our globe right now as we speak. Of course, you guys know the famous saying by Tertullian, which says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So there's reviling, there's persecuting, which, which is referring more to physical harm. And then the, the third one, Jesus says, is they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. This simply means slander. It's not just insults. It's actually false accusations and gossip meant to harm you. Unfortunately, I've personally experienced in my life having left another church and, 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 and a pastor of that church really not acting in a godly way at all, trying to defame my character as I left the church, saying false things about me, accusing me to others. And now your first reaction is you want to go back and say, hey, let me set the record straight. But part of being a Christian living by the Beatitudes is learning to be meek and let the Lord be your defender. Because the Lord will expose. If there's other believers that are hearing this slander, the Lord will expose the truth. And that's what happened. The Lord vindicated my name, but I remember that experience, this false thing. This something that was totally a lie being told to others about me. So that happens. There's false accusations, gossip. All over the world, Christians are sometimes accused of disturbing the peace or undermining civil authorities. They're brought before courts or mobs with trumped-up charges after being falsely accused by men who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. But what should we expect? That's exactly what they did to our Lord Jesus. And so Jesus warns in John 16, 2, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So persecution can come in Many different forms. But rest assured, if you are a believer, you will be mistreated in this world due to your faith. In one way or another. For us in the United States, it is usually in the form of verbal insults, accusations, or intimidation. But for others in other parts of the world, it's more violent. And sometimes it leads to torturous death. But the reality is that all true Christians will receive some sort, some form of mistreatment by the world. And if you're not experiencing some sort of resistance due to your faith, then I believe that's a call for us to examine ourselves. Perhaps we're not living in the world the way we should. We've isolated ourselves that we don't even know any unbelievers. We don't want to hang out. We don't want to touch any unbelievers. We don't have any friendships. We're not even sharing the gospel with people. Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe... We look too much like the world. 
So that there are unbelievers that we are associated with that know us. They have no clue that we're a Christian. Maybe, maybe we're afraid and we fear man more than we fear God. Maybe we love the world. And maybe there are some in this room who just simply aren't saved. Because if you think you have the light in you but you don't, you have a very heavy darkness, self-delusion that you've fallen into. Friends, we are called to live in such a way that the world knows who we belong to. I think I've told this story before that when I was in Ecuador, I know I've told the story before. I can't remember what context, though. When I was in Ecuador, I went to a soccer game with my best friend, and we went to the championship final, and we bought tickets at the last minute. We went up to the gate and just bought some tickets, and we go into the stadium, and you've got to know stadiums in third world countries are interesting. And um, there's these sections, and you're stuck in the section. You can't move to another section of the stadium because the sections are separated by barbed wire, okay? So this is in the stadium. There's fences with these little, like, prison-type barbed wire coming down. And we go in, and we're wearing the shirt of the team that we're there to cheer for, and we realize we walked into the enemy section. We're wearing blue and red shirts, and they're all wearing bright yellow. There was no hiding it, okay? And we feared for our lives. If you've ever watched South American soccer riots, you know there's reason to fear. So there we were sitting, and so actually the team we were cheering for won the game, and, but when they scored that only goal in the game, we didn't move. We just sat there and kind of went, you know, because we were scared. There was no hiding what team we belonged to. That should be the life of the believer. There should be no hiding who you belong to in this world. And there should be no fear to stand up and worship Jesus, even though it might cost you your life. If you're a believer, a kingdom citizen, there will be no hiding it because the truth of the matter is the Holy Spirit is at work in all true believers and is conforming them to the image of the Son. All true Christians are progressively looking more and more like Christ. Therefore, the reality is that all true Christians will receive some form of mistreatment by the world. So let me bring up our second point, the reason, which I've already hinted at. The reason is that all true Christians will increasingly look less like the world and more like Christ. That's the reason. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Colossians three ten. We have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Second Peter 1.4, he has granted to us this precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Second Corinthians 4.11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Friends, there's no wiggle room in the scriptures about this. The type of Christian who isn't at least in some degree becoming more like Christ as you look at the overall progression of their life is the type of Christian that is foreign to the Scriptures. Let me say that again. The type of Christian who isn't at least in some degree 
becoming more like Christ as you look at the overall progression of his or her life is a type of Christian that is foreign to the Scriptures. Christians should look more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. And since the world hated Christ, it hates us. And that's why this beatitude teaches in verse 10, blessed are those who persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So righteousness' sake here in verse 10 is parallel to what Jesus says in verse 11, on my account. On my account. So we've said in previous sermons that righteousness that the believer is hungering and thirsting for and that he is subsequently filled with is the very character of God. So as kingdom citizens, as we become more and more like Christ, who is the fullness of God, who, who, in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, the more and more we should reflect the character and the goodness and the holiness of God. So the believer is persecuted on my account, on Christ's account, for Christ's namesake. 1 Peter 3.13 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will." Than for doing evil. Now, as the Apostle Peter implies here at the very end of this little passage I just read, there can be bad reasons for being persecuted. It's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't just say, Blessed are the persecuted, period. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for my name's sake. We may get grief over some political stance that we take or some cause that we want to get behind. I see that a lot in Christians. It's easy for us to get all up in arms when people don't see things the way we see them politically. Let's take an issue. Oh, common core. All right, we, people aren't seeing common core the way I see it, and they're, they're making fun of me. Well, that's not the persecution that Jesus is speaking of here. Or perhaps someone's striving to do social justice or fight for some great cause, and, and that's good, and that's... That's worthy, but that may not be the same thing as the type of persecution talked about here. We are to strive for justice. We are to fight for good causes, but we die for Christ. I'm afraid many people will die for their pet cause. And they'll put up with a little bit of issues if, okay, if I get in trouble because I'm a Christian. We are not to seek out persecution either, as if it's some sort of, some sort of badge of honor. There should be no martyrdom complex in us that we're seeking out persecution. That was a problem in the early church, by the way. Early on, that some believers sought out persecution. And Jesus doesn't tell us to do that. Uh, nor are we to be persecuted because we're jerks. Okay? Remember, this, this follows peacemaking. We're not to be quarrelsome people, objectionable people, jerks. Okay, if you get fired for being jerk in your office... Because you just shoving the scriptures down everybody's throat. And I use that phrase carefully. I mean, you're actually being a jerk in the office. Your boss has told you, please, I, you need to stop doing that. And you continue to do it. And you get fired. Friends, don't call that persecution. 
That's being stupid. Learn how and when true persecution comes. I think our former elder here, Deemer, was a great example of this. Many of you guys knew Deemer's struggles at his work. That he was made fun of for being a Christian. His boss made fun of him. One time his Bible was out on his desk and, and uh, his boss came and said, that's objectionable reading material, you need to get rid of it. And he was treated like that all the time. But he submitted to the authority that had been placed over him. He, he, he removed the Bible that day. But he didn't stop being a witness for Christ. And the other people in, the, in that workplace saw that. They saw how he was able to handle that with meekness, with wisdom, with discernment. And so there's much um, wisdom I think we need to seek here. James 1.5 wisdom when we really think about what it means to be persecuted. In my study this week, I found one commentator who said this, live in such a way that the world cannot ignore you. I think that needs to be more specific. Live in such a way that the world cannot ignore Christ in you. Because there's a lot of people that live in such a way that the world can't ignore them simply because they're annoying. Live in such a way that they can't ignore Christ in you. Now, that might annoy them too, but let them be annoyed by Christ. Let them be annoyed by the gospel. Not because you have a temperament where you just jump down everyone's throat. Let them see Christ in you, and if they hate you for that, that's persecution. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So really the question is, this may sound kind of strange, is what do you smell like? What do you smell like this morning? Do you smell? What do I mean? Well, if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then you should be filled with that righteousness. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, you should smell. And here's what it says. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So the world's going to think you stink. But your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ will see a lovely aroma in you. When Christ shines through you. Persecution doesn't only come to us because we share the gospel, although we should unashamedly and courageously share the gospel with all, and that will bring some form of persecution, at least at some point in our life. But persecution may come simply because we live out our lives as being transformed by the gospel, and thus we no longer are conformed to this world. As 1 Peter 4, 4 teaches us that the world is surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So the world is shocked that you're not carrying out the same things they're doing. So you may walk away from the water cooler as an off-color joke is being told and they call you a prude. You, may, you, don't, wanna, uh, know any, you don't know anything about that blockbuster film that came out that everyone else is enjoying because it's filled with filth and they may call you out of touch. 
You won't take the ethical shortcut that your boss hinted that you should do, and they call you self-righteous, and you lose your promotion. You won't embrace the world's rejection of Scripture and Genesis' account of how things came into being, and they call you an ignorant fool. You won't celebrate the type of sexual diversity that the world tells you to celebrate. A world, by the way, now where Facebook now has 50 different choices under their gender option. Did you read that this week? This week, Facebook just started offering 50 options when it comes to gender. Is the world just so losing its mind? A two-year-old can tell you how many genders there are. Because he draws the little girl in pink and draws the little boy in blue and knows there's two. And yet there's PhD Harvard professors saying, well, let's come up with some more. So in a world that tells you to celebrate that type of diversity, you're called a narrow-minded bigot. You stand on God's word as authoritative and you're called, as one renowned atheist called us, a menace to an evolved modern society. Christians are a menace to a modern and evolved society. Al Mohler in um, your young adults should have got, you should have gotten a sheet this week that Carrie sent out for your, if you have youth here at the church. It's what Al Mohler wrote. He said, to proclaim biblical truth to this culture is to risk social isolation, outright rejection, and in some cases, potent attacks. The church which proclaims that adultery Premarital sex and homosexuality are inherently and unquestionably sinful. We'll quickly discover what it means to be cut off from the cultural mainstream. And see, that's the problem. So many of our churches and pastors want to be in the mainstream. They want to be a big fish in the big current. And yet the scripture says, if you follow Christ... You're going to be hated by that current. You're going to be swimming upstream. The reality is that all true Christians will receive some form of mistreatment by the world. And the reason that all Christians receive that mistreatment is they will increasingly look less like the world and more like Christ. And so how do we keep going in a world that's increasingly against us? That's my third point this morning. The resolve of all true Christians to joyfully endure comes by seeing the present, looking to the future... And remembering the past. The resolve that all true Christians, of all true Christians, to joyfully endure comes by seeing the present, looking to the future, and remembering the past. First we see the present. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Friends, persecution for righteousness' sake by the world is a strong testimony that you don't belong to this world. Persecution on account of Christ by the kingdom of darkness is a strong witness that you now belong to a different kingdom, even as we await that kingdom. And knowing that truth gives us a strong resolve, a firm determination to endure. There's a story of a, of a preacher named John Rogers who was burned at the stake in England in 1555 because he refused to reject biblical Christianity and refused to embrace the idolatry of Rome. His children, the story goes, accompanied him to the stake. And they stood there and they called out encouragements to him. 
through their tears that he might be strong and not turn back and not recant because they were sitting there saying, do you recant? Do you recant? And his children are sitting there over on the side crying and saying, Dad, don't do it. Dad, don't do it. Dad, don't do it. They wanted him to be strong, to have strong resolve, to not turn back, to not dishonor Christ. And so he burned alive as they shouted out encouragements to him. 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you rejoice that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through its, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These persecutions, these reviling that comes our way, it should be a testimony that we belong to a different kingdom and that we stand strong knowing that though they may take our life, they cannot take our citizenship. The Christian knows that he is now a member of God's kingdom and thus he, he knows what the world has to offer now is nothing in comparison. So he looks to the promises and he endures. Hebrews eleven thirteen, speaking of these heroes of the faith that went before us, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Think about that. God is not ashamed to call Christians who endure persecution their God. I belong to them. I belong to John Rogers as he burns at the stake. I belong to his children. I belong to Peter as people come up and spit in his face because he's sharing the gospel. I belong to Richie as he's over in India sharing the gospel and people are calling him a fool. I belong to these people because they are standing firm and they know that they have another homeland. And I'll bring them home when I'm ready. In Revelation 6, we read, this isn't in my notes here, so I'm not going to quote it right because I'm I'm not good at Bible memorization. Thank you. I've confessed. Now it's over. Revelation chapter 6 speaks of there being souls under the altar. The souls of those who were martyred. And they're crying out to God for justice. And the Lord looks at them and says, just a little more time until the right number has come in. A little bit more time. God knows exactly who all is going to have to suffer and how they're going to have to suffer and how long they're going to have to suffer. It's all within his providential plan. And so we rest assured any suffering that comes our way is actually for our good. That's how children can stand and watch their dad burn. Because they believe in a sovereign God who works all things together for the good of those who love him, even if good means your flesh is burnt off of your bones. So, Christians, we, we remember now, the present tense, we are part of a kingdom, but we also look to the future. It drives us to endure. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Reward. The scriptures don't teach that we merit anything, but it does teach us that we receive rewards for our faith, which in and of themselves are grace on top of grace. It's like grace frosting on a grace cake, the rewards that we get in heaven. So don't go out of here saying, okay, I can, if I go out and just suffer enough, I'm going to earn something with God. It's not the way it works. God ordains the suffering, and then he rewards the suffering he ordains. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Over and over again, we're taught, though, to look to the reward. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, what Jesus says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Now, Jesus steps up the happy language here. Okay, he steps it up quite a bit with this phrase. This phrase means to be so full of joy, overwhelmingly full of joy, that you want to celebrate. Here's what Joel Beakey says. Joel Beakey says this literally means to skip and jump with happy excitement. Skip and jump with happy excitement when persecution comes your way. This is exactly what we see from Peter and John in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after they had been flogged. You know what flogging is? Okay, they were told not to preach the gospel. They preached it anyway, so they're flogged. There was this, the cat of nine tails was brought out, which you know was this leather whip. They had little pieces of bone and glass and stuff embedded in it. And they whipped their back 40 times minus one. So it was 39 lashes. Many prisoners died simply from that torturous punishment. So there they are walking back to the church with their backs literally jelly. And they say this. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name Don't you see the people in Scripture view suffering as a grace? They were considered worthy to receive the suffering. How many of us look at that when we're insulted, when your brother makes fun of you because you believe in the gospel? You say, well, thank you, Lord, for that gift of grace this morning. We don't usually do that, do we? Or when someone comes up and cusses you out on the street corner. Do we thank God for that gracious gift? Our suffering, it's something we were counted worthy to to actually endure because of what Christ has done for us. We should rejoice and be glad for what? Our reward is great in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4.17, one of my favorite verses. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us For an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are motivated by seeing the present reality that we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. And by looking to our future rewards, but also by looking back. By looking back at the past to those who went before us. So verse 12 goes on. It says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are undergoing some sort of persecution for righteousness' sake, you are part of a long line of succession. You are carrying the torch. It's Olympics time, right? So they carried the torch across Russia. 
And they handed it from one athlete to another. And some of those athletes were former Russian greats. And there was the great athletes from the past that carried that torch and handed it off to some of the younger athletes as they continued to carry it across the continent. That's the way we are to see our suffering. And we look back at the great saints that went before us, not only the ones we have in Scripture, but we also look back. Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Get in touch with an organization like um, Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors and read what's going on. You may think it'll discourage you. It won't, actually. It'd actually encourage you to be that much stronger because you realize what I'm facing is nothing compared to that. And it will give you more courage to step into the furnace when you're facing it. We look back to the past, and Hebrews 11.35 speaks of this. The author of Hebrews tells us about some of those who have, of faith who went before us. He says, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and ghosts, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. Oh, how it ought to be our goal to live in such a way that we are a person of whom the world is not worthy. Friends, if you suffer for Christ's namesake, be glad. Skip with happy excitement, for you are part of a great kingdom with a great reward, and you are in great company. You are part of a great kingdom with a great reward, and you are part of a great company. So skip and be glad. Rejoice. 1 Peter four thirteen. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So let me conclude this morning with just a couple of things. First, speaking to those in here who are believers. Friends, I just want to encourage you as you think about the way our culture is going, as this culture continues to get dark. I want us to look to Christ. For Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. That's what the scriptures tell us. Look to Christ. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. You've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never been brought to faith. I challenge you, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved this morning. But I tell you this, count the cost. Count the cost. I will not bait you with the false hope that if you come to Jesus, you will have your best life now. That is a false gospel promoted on the airways by men who love the applause of the world. By men who like to be invited to news shows to discuss spiritual things. That teaching is a bunch of switched price tags. I don't give you those words. I give you the words of Jesus, who says, whoever loves his life loses it, 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And in Luke 14, 27, he said, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There will be no easy believism in this church. Where we bait you with some sort of promises that it's all going to be fun and happy from this point forward. If you come to Christ, you will be persecuted in some form or fashion. So I warn you now. I invite you to come. But count the cost. Count the cost. And if Christ is really at work in your heart, drawing you, his Holy Spirit is making you new, his Holy Spirit is bringing you into a new kingdom, you will embrace that cross. And you will count that cost. And you will come and you will bow your knee to the king of the universe. And you will trust him as your Lord and Savior. And your life will be changed. But I can't promise you it will be changed totally for the better. Yes, it will be changed in radical ways. And much of it will be better. But much of what will happen when you become a Christian, by this world's standards, is not better. It's better in God's economy, but not in this world's economy. Because remember, the price tags are switched. The believer isn't a believer because he wants his best life now. He knows his best life is yet to come. I feel sorry for those who believe that their best life is now. Oh my goodness, really? How depressing. How depressing. If someone in the name of the gospel told me, yeah, you can have your best life right now. Your best life is yet to come. It is yet to come because Christ has made a way for us to have unbroken fellowship with the Father. A fellowship that will be fully realized in the life to come. Jesus bore that cross, friends, to take the wrath of God against sin so that all who come to him by faith might have their sins expiated, eliminated, forever done away with, forgiven. And he bore that cross and took that wrath so that God's justice against sin might be quenched, it might be appeased, it might be satisfied, so that now all those who call upon his name and only those who call upon his name might be forgiven of their sin and might be declared righteous in his sight for the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ himself will be placed upon them so they are now forgiven and they are declared righteous and they are adopted into the family of God because they've been united to Christ. So I urge you to turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, take up your cross and follow him and suffering and pain and even death will no longer be of any worry to you for you will say with Paul, what Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So come to Christ and you will see that this transient life no longer has the value you thought it had before. The price tags will be set in right order. Come to Christ, repent of your sin, believe in him, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you right now, and I just, um, I know how frail and weak I am. And Lord, I don't know if I could have done what John Rogers did. I don't know if my children could have done what John Rogers' children did. God, I want to be stronger. I want this congregation to be stronger. I want us to have the type of faith 
that if this culture continues to value the belittling of those who hold to Scripture, that when that belittling turns into physical persecution, that I'll be able to stand. So, Lord, that's our prayer for all of us here. And we know that in and of ourselves we don't have the strength to do that. I'm scared of fire. That's why the Christian life is about our union with you and the Holy Spirit's presence in us. And we believe that those who are truly believers will endure to the end. Will endure. So Holy Spirit, give us newfound courage. Give us newfound strength. Give us newfound resolve. Give us boldness to share the faith with those that we've been scared to share with before because we're afraid we might get reviled. Give us the boldness to to step out into places where sharing the gospel could even put us at physical risk. Give us the boldness even today to pick up that phone and call that estranged relative and share the gospel for the hundredth time. Give us the strength because in and of ourselves we're drawn away by this world We look at the price tags and we begin to believe what Satan has done. Help us to be people of the kingdom. Help us to see that we are part of a great kingdom and that we have great reward and that we are in a great company. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do this in our hearts even as we sing this song about turning our eyes away from the world and turning them to Jesus. We pray that that would be our prayer that you would do that in our lives and that we would go out of here a strong people willing to endure any kind of hardship that you might grace us with. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.